Hello, DisasterCast listeners. It's Drew here. The podcast is on a brief hiatus due to some teaching commitments. We've got some great material coming up for the next few episodes. But in the meantime, this episode is just a few clips from past episodes. Enjoy. On the morning of 12th December, 1988, a crowded commuter train ran into the rear of a stationary train just outside of Clapham Junction. The commuter train bounced off the tracks and into the path of a third oncoming train. As a result, 35 people were killed and nearly 500 were injured. The hidden report states clearly that the purpose of this investigation was not to look for one simple, single solution to account for the tragedy, but to seek and establish both the immediate and the underlying causes of the accident, and all the circumstances attending it. Although he doesn't mention the technique by name, what Anthony Hidden accomplishes in his report is a masterpiece of root-cause analysis. Root-cause analysis has a somewhat deceptive name, Its purpose is not to find a single root cause of an accident. Rather, like the roots of a tree, it begins with a simple explanation and then builds a network of causal circumstances. For any statement of fact about an accident, root cause analysis prompts you to ask, how did this come to be? How was this allowed to remain? And how did this come to result in an accident? At Clapham Junction, Our causal network starts with a piece of wire. It was not a useful piece of wire. It should not have been there. It was, in fact, part of an old relay circuit that had been disconnected. This old piece of wire touched the circuit for a new signal that had been installed. This allowed electricity to flow across the circuit and caused the stationary train to become invisible to the signalling system. Since the circuit could see no train, the signal light to protect the train became green when it should have been red. In safety language, this is called a wrong side failure. Rail signals are designed to be fail-safe. If there's an error or failure in the system, it defaults to turning the signals red. The hopefully rare events which defeat a fail-safe strategy are called wrong side failures. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The accident was caused by a piece of wire. The wire was not supposed to be there. We know exactly who was supposed to make sure that the wire wasn't there. He took full responsibility afterwards, both for the wire and for the accident. But the hidden inquiry did not accept his claim of responsibility. When an old circuit is disconnected, it isn't always possible to completely remove the wire. In these cases, the maintenance rules say that three precautions should be taken. The wire should be disconnected at both ends, it should be cut back as short as possible, and it should be secured in a position where it cannot touch other wires. The maintainer did none of these things. This was a violation, a breaking of the rules. Now, how did the violation come about? 
It turns out that this was what the maintainer usually did. He routinely broke the rules, and no one had ever noticed and corrected him. He hadn't been trained to do the job properly, or undertaken any test or assessment in how to do electrical wiring. It wasn't just him, either. This was the regular way maintainers worked. They regularly broke the rules. How did the violation remain? Normal good practice would require a supervisor checking the work of the maintainer. The supervisor in this case was working with one of the track gangs. He never even entered the signal box, let alone checked the wiring work. It was one of those cases where the supervisor was working so hard that they forgot to supervise. Let's not jump to blame the supervisor though. This maintainer had been working on electrical wiring for 16 years, and not one of his supervisors had ever noticed that his work was routinely unsafe. So how did the violation come to result in an accident? It's a scary thought that a railway could be made unsafe by a single wiring error. In actual fact, there's an independent check called a wire count to prevent this sort of signal point of failure. The wire count should typically be the job of the supervisor, but he was unaware that this was part of his responsibility. So now, root cause analysis gives us three more facts that we need to explain. We have regular poor maintenance practices, a lack of adequate supervision, and a lack of knowledge about the importance of a wire count. For each of these things we could ask, how did this come to be, how did this remain, and how did it come to result in an accident? We could do this for each of the facts, but for the sake of simplicity, let's focus on the wire count, which the Hidden Report describes in capital letters as the last defence. It may have been the supervisor's job to actually do the count, but it was the job of the testing and commissioning engineer to make sure that it got done. The test and commissioning engineer was only temporarily in that role. As a result of a reorganisation, his previous position had disappeared. He'd applied for four or five other jobs in the railway, but he hadn't got them, so when he was offered a temporary role, he felt obliged to accept it. It was a temporary job that he didn't want in a location where he didn't want to work. Because it was temporary, he had no real induction or training for the work. The document describing the wire count that was supposed to be done was called SL53. It was a formal work instruction titled Testing of New and Altered Signalling. The test and commissioning engineer had seen this document in draft form, but had never read it in its final version. It had arrived in his inbox, but no one drew it to his attention or told him that it was his job to make sure it got implemented. This didn't stop him signing the box on the test certificate, saying that all work had been completed in compliance with SL53. If you've been following so far, you can probably see what's coming next. It doesn't actually matter who this engineer was. His predecessor, who wasn't temporary, and wasn't demotivated, and did understand the job, 
would have done exactly the same thing. The engineer in charge of improving the quality of testing for the whole region would have done the same thing. None of these engineers, with test and commissioning in their job title, was aware that a formal work instruction with testing in its title had been issued and was in force. SL53 didn't appear from nowhere. It was produced in response to a series of wrong side failures called the Oxted Incidents and the Queenstown Road Incident. All of these incidents would have been avoided by a proper wire count. The tester in charge of the Queenstown Road Incident had been blamed and reprimanded, but no one had stopped to ask how a tester, without training or awareness of the work instructions, had been put into that job. As the hidden report states, the fault did not lie merely with the tester's shoddy work, it lay equally with the person who had sent him to do the job. The hidden report contains a fairly lengthy discussion of reorganisations within the Signalling and Telecommunications Department of British Rail. This discussion fails to reach a strong conclusion. Hidden recognises that the regional testing team had three tasks. To conduct testing, to improve the standard of testing, and to improve the training and competence of testers. They were so busy doing the first of these that they failed in the other two. This was the case before the reorganisations. So the worst that can be said is that the reorganisations were missed opportunities for reform. My personal speculation, reading between the lines, is that the number and size of reorganisations had created reform fatigue. Staff were reluctant to undertake long-term initiatives because they expected any improvements to be wiped out by the next reorganisation. Faced with constant change, they focused on what they saw as the core part of their job and neglected the long-term parts. For any safety engineer, there's a balancing act between the immediate needs of the tasks at hand and the long-term needs of the organisation. The goal is always to do a good job within existing constraints, but to make sure that it will be easier to do a better job next time. The Clapham Junction accident could have been avoided if the people who knew most about testing were spending less time testing and more time creating a better test organisation. With all of the chaos in the causes and circumstances of an accident, I'm always amazed by the things that go right. The first person in charge of the accident scene was temporary station officer Mills. He arrived four minutes after the crash and was in charge for a whole ten minutes. In that time, he had assessed the situation, begun to evacuate the passengers, worked out how many more ambulances and fire tenders were needed, declared a major incident so that the hospitals would be prepared, set up arrangements to direct the arriving police, ambulance and fire crews, set people to work to improve access to the crash site, and then joined in the rescue himself. Another hero in the aftermath was a controller called Mr Ronald Reeves. When his alarm panel started to flash, before anyone even told him that there was an accident, he had diagnosed that a major incident must have happened and isolated traction current from the whole area. Without his actions, the rescuers could have been at constant danger of electric power being restored 
throughout the first minutes of the evacuation. To give an indication of the sheer scale of the rescue effort required in an accident of this size, in addition to the police, fire brigade, ambulance, doctors and volunteers, there were 134 council workers involved in the rescue. Why does a rescue need council workers? Accidents don't tend to happen in convenient, easy-to-get-to places. While the first responses were struggling over fences and down a steep embankment, the council workers were creating better ways to get supplies in and stretchers out. They removed fences, they cut down trees, they built steps and paths for the other emergency workers. Some council workers were diverting traffic, carrying supplies or stretchers, or providing assistance to the unwounded survivors. When they were finished with that part of the job, they lined up at the hospitals to donate blood. At 8.10 in the morning, a single out-of-place wire had killed 35 people. Hopefully this discussion has gone some way to explaining why I haven't mentioned the specific names of those who caused the accident. The Hidden Report does in fact name names and place blame. If you read the actual words of the report, you'll find that Hidden can be quite trenchant, but also understanding. He recognises that to stop an accident, it isn't enough to spot the violations, but also to find explanations. The BAC-111 is a short-haul passenger jet first flown in the 1960s. On 10th of June 1990, a BAC-111 flying as British Airways Flight 5390 was flying at 17,000 feet over Oxfordshire when the window on the captain's side of the aircraft burst away, sucking the captain with it. His head and body were out of the window, and his legs became trapped around the control column pulling the aircraft into a rolling dive. The sudden decompression ripped the flight deck door off its hinges, and it fell across the controls. The co-pilot, Alastair Acheson, was faced with a 400 mile an hour wind screaming through his cockpit, an aircraft spiralling downward through busy traffic, a door and half a captain blocking his controls, and the other half of the captain hanging out the window. One of the stewards, about to serve the captain breakfast, instead found himself desperately hanging on to the captain's legs to stop him falling out. Under these rather trying conditions, the co-pilot managed to regain control of the aircraft. He was directed to land at Southampton, an unfamiliar airport. The runway at Southampton was 400 metres too short for the type of aircraft, and the wings were still full of fuel. By this stage, another two stewards had arrived to assist but the captain was not moving. They kept hold of him, because even if he was dead, his body might damage the wing or engine as it fell. In the end, the co-pilot landed successfully, and the captain survived. The physical cause of this accident was depressingly simple. The windscreens on BAC-111s are supposed to be fastened with British standard A2118D bolts. On this aircraft, the windscreen was accidentally fastened with British standard A2118C bolts. The shift manager, who had fitted the window, made a mistake and used bolts that were too narrow. If we wanted to be simplistic, 
we could say that this was a human error by the maintainer, rescued through heroic performance by the co-pilot. But really, we don't want to be simplistic. We want to understand what caused these people to behave in the way they did. Let's start with the maintainer. Instead of thinking about what he could have done differently, let's consider what else could have been different. The BAC-111 could have been designed so that air pressure held the windscreen on instead of needing tightly fastened bolts. That's the way most aircraft are designed. The bolt holes could have been designed so that it was impossible to insert and tighten the wrong sized bolts. The bolts could have been designated as safety critical items instead of just as uncontrolled consumables. The procedure for changing the bolts could have been better designed as well. The maintainer was supposed to consult a database to find the correct part number, but the database was slow and hard to use. The bolts were stored in a poorly labelled carousel, in a poorly lit work area. There was no built-in mechanism to check that the right parts were used, or even to check that the job was done properly. The maintenance organisation could have been better designed. Shift managers supervised the work of other maintainers, but there was no one to supervise the shift managers when they acted as maintainers. The fatigue management system didn't take into account body rhythms associated with shift patterns. The quality management system was spotting lots of minor part defects, but it wasn't being used to flag major issues, like the fact that the carousel was poorly labelled. This was a situation that was inviting, almost forcing maintenance error, and providing no means to detect the error when it occurred. Now, let's look at the aircrew and we'll start with something so obvious you may have missed it. Passenger jets always have at least two pilots, and they are never short-staffed. If one of the pilots is busy handling an emergency, or talking to air traffic control, or hanging out of a window, the other pilot is there to take over some of the workload. When the first steward to enter the cockpit started suffering from fatigue and frostbite, another steward was right there to take over holding the captain. Secondly, the crew didn't hang around asking for someone to tell them what to do. They understood what needed to be done, and they trusted the others to do their jobs too. This doesn't happen by accident. It's the result of training, experience, and a work environment that fosters teamwork. The cockpit was designed so that even when a pretty unexpected situation put a number of the controls out of action, there was enough functionality left for the co-pilot to land the aircraft. None of this takes away from the skill and professionalism of co-pilot Alastair Acheson. It does show, though, that if we want humans to make this sort of contribution, we have to give them the right conditions to make it possible. In March 1979, a new movie called the China Syndrome, about a nuclear power plant accident and cover-up, was showing in theatres across the USA. In March 1979, a daily newspaper called The Record ran a four-part series criticising safety at a reactor complex in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania. These reports were described by the president of the company operating the reactors as unpatriotic and, quote, like shouting fire in a crowded theatre. 
and in March 1979, reactor number two at the complex, known as Three Mile Island, suffered a partial meltdown. In a pressurised water reactor, such as Three Mile Island number two, there are two coolant loops. The primary coolant runs right through the reactor. It's a closed loop. It keeps the same liquid circulating over and over. This liquid takes heat away from the reactor core and transfers it to the feed water loop. The feed water is turned into steam by heat from the primary loop and blasts through the turbines, creating electricity. Both loops are necessary for both power generation and for safety. You need the feed water loop to keep the primary loop cool. You need the primary loop to keep the reactor core itself cool. The water in the primary loop has three closely related variables. Mass, temperature and pressure. Unless water is actually being put into the reactor or leaking out of the reactor, mass is constant. The main way of regulating temperature is to keep the water moving and the main way of regulating pressure is with an attached tank called the pressurizer. If there's too much pressure in the loop, some of the coolant moves from the loop to the tank. If there's not enough pressure in the loop, some of the coolant moves back from the tank to the loop. At around 4am, due to a failure of secondary systems, the feed water loop stopped circulating. There's a backup system called the auxiliary loop, which didn't work because two valves which were supposed to be open had been left shut after testing. This blockage in the feed water loop immediately caused an increase in temperature, and therefore pressure, of the primary loop. In response, the reactor shut down, just as it was supposed to do. As a result of the sudden increase in pressure, a valve called the PORV opened to release some of the pressure, just as it was supposed to do. This is a fairly normal part of an emergency shutdown. But, after the pressure was released, the valve was supposed to close again. It didn't. An open valve meant that steam was flowing out of the primary loop, into the pressurizer, and then out through the PORV. Eventually, this would mean not enough coolant and a melting reactor core. This is known as an LOCA, a loss of coolant accident. Now it happens that there was a simple solution to this exact problem. There was an operator-controlled backup called the block valve. If the operators closed the block valve, steam would stop escaping, and the reactor would be back to its normal shutting down state. Shutting the block valve, though, isn't a general solution to any problem. It's a very specific solution to a stuck-open PORV. Before the operators could implement this as a solution, they needed to understand the problem. This is the point where it would be very helpful for the operators to have a little light that told them whether the PORV was open or closed. And there was indeed a light that they thought provided this information. The light was turned on and off, though, by the power to the valve rather than the valve position itself. So they thought it was telling them that the valve was closed, 
when in fact it was merely telling them that the valve was meant to be closed. So with the valve stuck open, and the operators not closing the block valve, a loss of coolant accident was in progress. The operators didn't know what was causing the loss of coolant, but maybe they could at least tell that there was a loss of coolant. Well, that would have been possible if there was a direct way of monitoring the amount of coolant. Instead, they'd been trained to monitor the amount of coolant indirectly by checking the level of the pressurizer. If there was a leak in the primary loop, then the coolant in the pressurizer would have moved into the primary loop to compensate. If there was no leak, the pressurizer would still have plenty of coolant. So for a leak in the primary coolant tube, this was a fairly reliable way of identifying it. But this mental model didn't take into account the possibility that there might be a loss of coolant accident without any leak in the primary loop. The coolant was flowing out of the loop through the pressurizer, so the pressurizer itself had plenty of coolant, even though the loop itself was starting to run dry. The automatic systems, though, recognised what was going on, and the high-pressure injection pumps started. The purpose of these pumps is to rapidly push extra coolant into the loop. From the operator's point of view, though, these pumps were pushing extra coolant into a loop that was already almost full. So here's the situation. We have an open valve, the PORV, letting coolant escape from the reactor. We have a reactor without enough coolant. And we have operators who think that the exact opposite is happening. The operators thought that there was too much coolant. The loop and pressurizer are not supposed to be completely full, because once you've completely filled the coolant loop and pressurizer, you've got no way left to control the pressure. This is called going solid. So when the high-pressure injection pumps automatically started, they turned them off again. Not only was the coolant loop short of water, it was now losing water faster than new water was going in. And as the amount of liquid went down, the remaining coolant flashed into steam. There were a few clues as to what was actually going on. There was a very low concentration of boron in the coolant loop, a hint that there wasn't much coolant at all there. The reactor temperature was increasing, another hint that there wasn't much coolant. In fact, even though all of the control rods were in place, the reaction was effectively restarting, so the radiation emitted by the reactor was increasing. And all of the missing coolant had to be going somewhere. It had ended up in the reactor drain tank, which had increased pressure to the point of bursting. There was also even a temperature monitor downstream of the PORV. The indicator for this monitor, though, was on the back of the control room panel, effectively out of view unless the operators deliberately knew what to look for. Each of these clues suggested that there was missing coolant, but all of the clues were misinterpreted by the operators. The actions they took were sensible from their point of view. When the coolant pump started vibrating, another hint that there was a coolant shortage, 
they turned them off, relying on natural circulation. Based on their view of the world, the pumps vibrating was not unexpected. It could also happen if there was too much pressure. And turning them off is a sensible thing to do for too much coolant. It's just not the right thing to do if you've got a mostly empty coolant loop filled with steam. A mixture of steam and water doesn't naturally circulate. It separates into steam at the top and water at the bottom. At 6.20, over two hours after the shutdown began, a technician who'd newly come on shift worked out that the PORV must be leaking, and he closed the block valve. This would have been exactly the right thing to do two hours ago, and it was the right thing to do now. Unfortunately, a lot of damage had already occurred, and not everyone knew when the valve had been closed. So he was fixing part of the problem, but he was also removing the evidence of what the problem actually was. If you told the staff that the PORV had failed two hours ago, and that the block valve had been open that entire time, they would have immediately reached the correct conclusion that the coolant had escaped and the reactor core was uncovered. If you simply told them that the POLV had failed and the block valve was closed, they might incorrectly eliminate a coolant leak as a possible explanation for what was going on. And that is in fact what happened. Meanwhile, inside the reactor core, the cladding on the fuel rods was reacting with the hot steam. Fuel itself was melting and spilling into the water, releasing radioactive material. Around 7am, radiation levels in the reactor building started to increase towards dangerous levels. And at 7.24, three and a half hours after the shutdown, a general emergency was declared. Now remember that the plant supervisor who declared a site emergency and the station manager who declared the general emergency still didn't really know what was going on. They were over three hours into a loss of coolant accident and all they knew was that there was a radiation leak. We now know that the main cause of radiation inside the reactor building was the overheating melting core and that radioactive material escaped via the coolant that was leaking. It flowed through the sump and into the auxiliary building, which was outside of the containment boundary, so we now had radiation outside the reactor building. There's a whole story to be told here about the communication between the power plant operators, the regulators, and the public. I'm not really sure how to summarise the complicated and sordid tale, except to say that during the Fukushima emergency, the Pennsylvania governor at the time of Three Mile Island was asked what advice he would give the Fukushima authorities. His advice? Get the facts. After the first day of Three Mile Island, an emergency that extended for weeks, he says that they abandoned the operator as a reliable source of information. To return to the technical story, why did the emergency last for weeks? Eight hours after the initial shutdown, the operators still didn't know what had happened, but they had a good idea of what they were faced with now. They took a series of actions to reintroduce coolant, 
eventually establishing a powered flow of coolant around what was left of the reactor core. 16 hours after the accident, the core temperature started to decrease. Over the next day, the problem went from the crisis of dealing with an overheating reactor to the more chronic problem of dealing with a melted reactor. And then another crisis arose. When metal corrodes in water, it binds the oxygen as solid oxides, but it releases the hydrogen as gas. This happens slowly over time in any nuclear plant, but it happens very rapidly when an overheated core is exposed to steam during a loss of coolant accident. At Fukushima, the large explosions were in fact hydrogen gas igniting, and the same threat was present at Three Mile Island a large bubble of hydrogen inside the pressure dome. Again, this problem was not correctly diagnosed. Early clues were misunderstood, and the right people didn't have the right information to work out what was going on. Fortunately, the hydrogen, whilst dangerous, wasn't mixed with enough oxygen to be explosive. This bought people enough time for this crisis, at least, to be correctly diagnosed and eventually resolved. There really isn't such a thing as unbiased studies of the effects of nuclear accidents. Everyone has an opinion about nuclear power, and that decision is as likely to inform any research as it is to be informed by the research. My intent in saying this isn't to disparage any of the excellent work that's been done by researchers in the field, just to point how difficult it is for outsiders to interpret the findings of how bad something like Three Mile Island is. It's not disputed that significant quantities of radioactive gas and a small quantity of iodine-131 were released outside the plant. The general consensus is that the accident caused significant economic harm, but that it did not have any long-term health effects.